Turn with me in your Bible to the New Testament letter titled Colossians. It's after Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, four small but powerful letters back to back in the New Testament. And the text that I've selected for this morning for a New Year's message is Colossians 3, 1 through 4. So please follow along as I read these verses just to get them in our minds before we begin to break them down and unpack them and so forth. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. As we begin to contemplate this text of Scripture, let me ask you a question just to probe your thinking. This is a question, obviously, you don't need to answer out loud, but just a rhetorical question. And it is this, what... What would be your definition of true spirituality? What does it mean to be genuinely spiritual? Now, that is a term I'm sure you know that is used very common today, uh, especially in the new age thinking of the day. Uh, People talk about being spiritual. I'm not talking about that way. I'm talking about a spiritual Christian, a spiritually minded believer. What would be your definition? In many Christian circles, true spirituality is based on and factored in regarding things such as the length of a man's hair, or whether a woman wears a dress or a pantsuit to church. In other circles, Christians think uh, true spirituality is determined by whether or not you ever go to the movie theater. And still in other circles, the issue is using the King James Version of the Bible. There are others who would say true spirituality is defined or at least depicted by not listening to any Christian music that has a beat to it or has any tempo. Others would say a truly spiritual Christian is someone who wants to take care of his or her body so the person follows a health food diet very meticulously. Still others would say true spirituality is not doing any activities Sunday afternoon. You don't rake the leaves, you don't shovel the snow, you don't do anything Sunday afternoon because you are a spiritual person. There are others who would say true spirituality is not having any money. If you're poor, you're spiritual. There are others who would say true spirituality is never missing a Wednesday night prayer meeting. Still others would say true spirituality is making sure you share your faith X number of times a week, whatever that is, at least three times a week or five times a week. Still others would say the mark of true spirituality is the person who prays for revival. And there would be others who would say, no, true spirituality, the core, the the key element, the, the key factor or identifying factor is giving so much of your money to missions. These are the kinds of things, and many others, that people use as the determining factor of true spirituality. 
You may or may not be aware of the fact that there are actually churches in our nation that won't baptize new Christians unless they, specifically the men, unless they have their hair cut a certain way. There are churches that disdain women who wear anything other than long dresses all the time. That's always been an interesting one to me because those who impose that kind of standard do so based on the Old Testament passage where God says a woman should not dress like a man. But the problem with using that passage to prove or to try to prove that women ought to always wear dresses is that when that was written, the men wore long robe-like dresses and the women wore garments similar to pants. So it's almost completely flip-flopped in our day and age. But that is a false standard of spirituality that is commonly held in many circles of Christianity. There are Christians who believe and are convinced that it is, it is a serious sin to go to a movie theater to see a movie even such as Bambi or Snow White. In fact, I even know some Christians who think it's wrong to go to a movie theater to see a Billy Graham film. Some people, as I mentioned already, think that not having money is a mark of spirituality. Poor equals spiritual. And thus, if you have money, if you have any means whatsoever, you are automatically not a spiritual person or a spiritual Christian. All sorts of inaccurate criteria are used to evaluate spirituality. But this is really nothing new. This has been going on since the beginning of time. It's been going on a long time because, watch this, and this is, this is even my hesitancy in giving the list I gave earlier, is that I would give the impression that those are the only false standards of spirituality. And if I forgot the one that you would use or I would use, that somehow that would excuse us. You see, it is the tendency of the human heart to want a list, a list of do's and don'ts. And we we like the, the comfort level of having our list that says, if I do this and I don't do that, I am really a spiritual person. We like to be able to check the box. It's not very comfortable for us to have to really think and wrestle through issues of life to determine what really is true spirituality. Therefore, since it is our tendency to want to make a list and to want to to check the box of externals, God's people have always, always had the tendency to lapse into a false standard of spirituality. For example, in the Old Testament, there were those in Israel who based their spirituality on their nationality, on their circumcision, on their offerings, on their rituals, on their sacrifices. And God, frankly, God despised that shallow, immature, incomplete, inaccurate view of spirituality. Look at what he said back in Isaiah chapter 1. Go back into Hebrew Scripture. After the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, then Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, verse We'll begin in verse 11, and as we begin reading here, I want to remind you that it was God himself who instituted the sacrificial system. God himself who required his people to offer sacrifices. And yet, and yet, notice these words beginning in verse 11. To what purpose, chapter 1 of Isaiah, verse 11, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? 
I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of the assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. Now again, I remind you, these were things God told the people of Israel to do. He told them to do this. And yet, listen to his language here. Verse 15, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Here, God, in strong language, says, I hate this stuff. You think you're really spiritual because you bring the, the sacrifices and you, you observe the new moons and the Sabbaths. And remember, one of the reasons they were carried away into captivity is because they didn't keep the Sabbath. And yet God says here, I, I hate this stuff. You, you keep the Sabbath, you offer these sacrifices, but it's all external. You're, you're checking the boxes. You're keeping the list. And I hate it. Then look over at Amos chapter 5. Keep going to the right. After Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Keep going a little further. Hosea, Joel, then Amos. Amos chapter 5. Similar language God uses here. He says in verse 21 of Amos chapter 5, I hate, I despise your feast days. And I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. God didn't want their worship in song. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments, but let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Now, notice that last phrase. Let righteousness run like a mighty stream. In other words, what you're doing isn't righteous. You mean going through the actions of what God has said is not automatically righteous? That's correct. Doing what God says to do isn't automatically righteous. God's, the clear implication of God's statement here is you're not being righteous. Even though you're offering the sacrifices, you're singing the praises, you're not being righteous. God hated that perspective of, of spirituality then and he hates it now. When it's just a list for us. When it's just checking the box. As you know, Jesus' strongest words were directed against those who thought they knew Scripture the best and thought they were most spiritual. But the problem is they had created their own standard of spirituality with a few passages of Scripture as supposed support. So eight times in Matthew 23, Jesus pronounces woe to that group, and amazingly, he acknowledged that that group even tithed. Did you catch that? They even tithed. But eight times, Jesus pronounces a woe to them. 
He says they, admitted, they omitted the more important matters of righteousness, mercy, and faith. Listen to these words. I know you've heard them before. Matthew 23, verse 24. Jesus says, Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly. But inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men. You see, they were doing all the right things. Many of the things God had commanded to be done. And yet the last phrase, but inside you are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. What was the problem? What was the problem in the passage we looked at in Isaiah and in Amos and here in Matthew? Here was the problem. In, in all three cases, the people in view based spirituality merely on externals. Merely on externals. Outward actions, activities, do's and don'ts. A few years after Jesus spoke these words, the same type of thing was going on in the city of Colossae. A group of false teachers was saying, or trying to push upon the believers in Colossae, uh, the, the idea that true spirituality is Christ plus philosophy and human wisdom. True spirituality is Christ plus legalism, certain man-made rules. Christ plus mysticism and certain ecstatic experiences. If you have this experience, that experience, then you're really a spiritual person. Or maybe Christ plus asceticism, which was a life that was dominated by don'ts. You cannot, you cannot, don't do this, don't do this. So in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, the Spirit of God says, let no man judge you in these things. In verse 18 of that same chapter, he says, let no one cheat you out of your reward. In other words, don't be intimidated by those who push their standards on you and who try to get you to conform externally to their list. Because as verse 10 says of Colossians chapter 2, You are complete in Christ. One man put it this way, quote, If a modern-day Pharisee tries to control your life, stop him. Stop her. Chances are, however, that once an individual is infected, he will go right on nitpicking and self-praising for the rest of his shallow life, choked by the thorns of his own conceit. Pharisees, remember, are terribly hard of listening. End quote. That basically sums up what Paul is saying in Colossians regarding the cult that was trying to intimidate the believers in this church. So we come to chapter 3 this morning of Colossians, and to get a running start, let's, let me, just let me remind you that for two chapters, Paul has been laying a doctrinal foundation. So as we come to chapter 3, he's calling for a practical response to what he has taught in chapters 1 and 2. As we've seen in the past, this is is a very common pattern for Paul. He goes from doctrine to duty, or to say it another way, from position to practice, or to say it another way, behavior is a response to precepts, life is a response to theology. 
This was Paul's common pattern. Not only does he follow it here in Colossians, he does so in Ephesians, he does so in Romans, he does so in many of his letters. He goes from theology to life, from position to practice. By the way, this pattern is further proof that righteous living doesn't earn salvation, but rather results from salvation. As Christians, we have experienced a radical change of spiritual environment, and Paul is telling us this should affect every facet of our lives. So again, I ask you, what is true spirituality? What would be your definition of true spirituality? Let me take a stab at a definition. This is by no means perfect or exhaustive, but here would be one suggestion. True spirituality is union with Christ by which the Christian dies to sin and the world's way of thinking, the world's way of acting, and lives a life of response to Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. True spirituality is union with Christ. It starts there. We're not talking about new age spirituality, being a spiritual person. We're talking about someone who is united with Christ. True spirituality is union with Christ by which the Christian dies to sin and dies to the world's way of thinking, dies to the world's way of living, and instead lives a life of response to Jesus Christ. That is the theme of Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Here in these opening verses, Paul is calling for an eternal perspective on life, a radical reorientation of thinking. Now, as we come to this section here in chapter 3, it's important to realize that Paul is developing in more detail his statement in chapter 2, verse 12. Notice what he says just back a few verses. Chapter 2, verse 12, he says, We were buried with him, that is Christ, in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Basically what Paul is saying in that verse is that we have experienced a spiritual resurrection as believers in Jesus Christ. It is a radical spiritual resurrection. Now, don't ask me to explain it any further than that. This is, this is such a difficult concept to, to grab hold of, but the New Testament talks about this in several places. There is a sense in which somehow we were raised with Christ spiritually. And by the way, that lets us know that here in verse 12, the baptism that Paul is talking about here is not a literal water baptism. It is also a spirit baptism. So we were buried with him in baptism, not in water, but spirit baptism, being immersed into the body of Christ, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So Paul is telling us here in verse 12, we are new in Christ. We have resurrection life. We have new life. We just need to get stronger now in that new life that is ours. Let me see if I can illustrate this concept by one of Jesus' miracles. Go back with me to Luke chapter 8 for one other passage before we look at the Colossians passage. Luke chapter 8, verse 49. 
We read, while Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, your daughter is dead, do not trouble the teacher. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him, saying, do not be afraid, only believe, and she will be made well. When he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the girl. Now all wept and mourned for her, but he said, do not weep, she is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. But he put them all outside, took her by the hand, and called, saying, Little girl, arise. Then her spirit returned, and she arose immediately. Now watch this. And he commanded that she be given something to eat. The first thing Jesus commanded was to give this girl food for strength. That's interesting, is it not? It would be easy to assume, hey, she just received new life resurrection life. She doesn't need anything. She just was raised from the dead. But Jesus indicated she needed food to get stronger in her life. And that's exactly the way it is in the Christian life. At conversion, we receive new life, resurrection life. But that's not the end. We don't say, oh, I have resurrection life. I'm good to go. I don't need to do anything else. No, that's only the beginning. We need to grow stronger in the new life that we've received. This is what Peter meant in those famous verses in 2 Peter 1. Let me just read them to you. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, as he opens his letter, he says this, His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. So it says we have everything we need. We have it all. By which, he has been, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now, it would be easy to read those verses and say, okay, we have resurrection life, new life, we have everything we need. Coast. We're good to go, just coast. But listen to the very next verse. But also, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. And to virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. To brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter says you have everything you need. But the response isn't coast. The response is now add. Add these things in your life. So again, we have resurrection life. This is what Paul is saying in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. We have been raised with Christ somehow, spiritually. We have new life, but it doesn't mean we coast. On the contrary, what are we supposed to do? Well, go back to our text in Colossians 3. Because it spells it out for us in four powerful verses. Colossians 3, verse 1 says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. The word if, the very first word in this sentence, is not really so much an expression of doubt. It's, it's more stating a reality. You could almost render this, since you are risen with Christ. It's an accomplished fact. Back in chapter 2, verse 12, we just saw it a moment ago. Paul says, we have been raised with Christ through faith in the energy of God. If we have placed faith in God and His power, we have been raised with Christ. 
Ephesians 2, 6 says, God has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And again, I say, don't ask me to explain that any farther than that or any more than that. I, I can't. It just says we have been raised up together to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have experienced a spiritual resurrection. So eternal life is not some future hope only. It is a present reality. It's not merely a quantity of life. It's a quality of life. And that's what Paul is saying here in verse 1. If you have, or if you are, then you can say, since you then were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. In Philippians 3.20, Paul said, our citizenship is in heaven. This world is no longer our home. Peter addressed the believers of his day as sojourners and pilgrims. Heaven is to be the preoccupation of our minds. That's what verse 1 is saying. So Paul exhorts us in verse 1 by saying, Since you have been raised with Christ, don't think that means that you just go into neutral. Since you have been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. The word seek here in verse 1 in most of our English translations speaks of a heart that is striving earnestly after something. In fact, you could say it this way. If you wanted to distinguish verses 1 and 2 since they're so similar, verse 1 speaks of the preoccupation of the heart, while verse 2 speaks of the preoccupation of the mind. That's the way the NIV, by the way, sort of renders these verses. So verse 1 is saying that our hearts should continually be set on things that are above. Spirituality is a life that focuses on things above. You could say it this way. It's having our inside living in heaven while our outside lives here on the earth. But our preoccupation is not so much with a place as it is a person. Because the end of verse 1 says, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Our minds, our attitudes, our ambitions, our entire, our, our entire outlook on life should be colored and characterized by our living bond with the ascended Christ. Paul is telling us here in verses 1 through 4 that our focus, this sounds like a cliche, it's not a cliche, our focus should be Jesus Christ. That's the subject of these four verses. You, you see that just when you read through. You see phrases like with Christ, where Christ, when Christ. Our focus on Him should govern our lives. Paul talks about, at the, the, right at the end of this verse, the right hand of God. Christ sitting at the right hand of God. That signifies the place of holiness, the place of power, the place of intercession. That's where our hearts should be. That's where Christ is. Jesus himself said in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So that's our aim. That's our aim. Verse 1 is it. Continually setting our hearts on things above. If you make New Year's resolutions, I don't know if you do that kind of thing, you can find no better New Year's resolution than Colossians 3, 1. 3, 1 and 2. 3, 1 through 4. This whole section. Set our hearts on things above. But how do we do that? Let's see if we can be a little more practical. Verse 2 gives us the method. Verse 2 says... Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. 
If you happen to be using the King James Version, you'll notice that it is the word affection here in verse 2, and that could be a little bit misleading. It is the word mind. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Our concentration should be on things above. In Romans 12.2, Paul called this being transformed by the renewing of your mind. In Ephesians 4.23, he called it being renewed in the spirit of your mind. The mind is key. It's not everything in the Christian life. Not by any means. We don't want to reduce the Christian life down to mere thinking, something cognitive. But the mind is key. If we fill our minds with the truth of God, the word of God, the will of God, we're setting our minds on things above. And beloved, that's why there's no, there's, there's no substitute for Scripture. Paul said in Acts 20, 32, Brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace which is able to build you up. Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 2, Long for the pure milk of the word that you may grow. Long for it. Desire it. 2 Timothy 3.17 says Scripture is able to mature us and equip us. So here in verse 2, Paul is saying our minds should be filled with God's eternal truth, not things on the earth. And that is why my goal for this new year, not so much personally in my own life, but vocationally my goal is the same goal it's been every year, and that is in the new year it's just to preach God's Word, to teach God's Word, to explain God's Word. Our minds should be filled with God's eternal truth. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, We look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. God, give us that kind of eternal perspective. God, give me that kind of eternal perspective. You know as well as I do, this is preaching to the choir. We, we all know this if we just are objective and honest. It's so easy to get caught up in how much money we make and what our house looks like and our clothes and our fame, prestige, popularity, fashion, education, and all of these things that we hardly know anything about a heavenly dimension of life. It's so easy to get preoccupied with keeping up with society around us. And before you know it, we have the same value system as the world. James 4.4 cautions us, warns us. It says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever is a friend of the world is the enemy of God. The beloved apostle John said in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And this world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. That has always been such a fascinating text of Scripture to me in that it tells, tells us the problem or the root of worldliness. John says in 1 John 2, 15 to 17, he says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The way then to take care of worldliness is to be filled with love for the Father. Let me illustrate this with an illustration I've used a few times before through the years, but it really helps me not get the wrong focus on how to attack worldliness. You see, our natural tendency is, well, if we, if we sense we're getting worldly, we start chopping, right? We start chopping things, chopping branch, sort of chopping branches off the tree, but we don't really get to the root. So here's the illustration. Let's say you're driving down the street, and all of a sudden, the 
oil light in your vehicle comes on. Comes on showing that you're really low on oil, dangerously low on oil. How do you address that? Do you reach under your seat and grab a ball peen hammer and knock out the oil light? That doesn't solve the problem. The, the oil light's just a sign, a, an indication of what, that there's no oil in the crankcase. You've got to put oil in the crankcase. And in the same way, if you look at your life and you realize, you know, I'm really being sucked into worldliness, you're, you're not going to conquer it by saying, oh, I'm going to stop this and start that. No, you need to fill the crankcase with love for the Father. Because 1 John says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We, we, we address that issue with love for the Father. So the solution to worldliness is to set our affections on things above, not on things of the earth. And that changes our perception of everything. It changes the grid through which we see life. Hudson Taylor was a man who had that kind of perspective on life. If you're not familiar with him, he was the founder of the China Inland Mission. His biographer said this of him, and I quote, He found the self-satisfying hymn-singing congregation in England intolerable. He looked around him and saw pew upon pew of prosperous, bearded merchants, shopkeepers, visitors, wives in bonnets, and scrubbed children trained to hide their impatience. The atmosphere of, sp- of smug piety sickened him, so he seized his hat and left. End quote. And then commenting on that, Hudson Taylor himself wrote these words. He said, Unable to bear the sight of a congregation of a thousand and more Christian people rejoicing in their own security while millions were perishing for lack of knowledge, I wandered out on the sands alone in great spiritual agony. End quote. That burden, that, that perspective resulted from having a mindset on things above, not on things on the earth. Verse 3 says this, For, Paul is explaining further, For you died. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is the reversal. This is the turnaround. We used to be dead in sin, unable to respond to God. Now we're dead to the world and dead to sin. Now we have the capacity to respond to God. In Galatians 2.20, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Galatians 6.14, he said, God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Did you hear that? I'm crucified unto the world. What does that mean? What is that picture? Think of it this way. A dead man is not consumed with the things of this world, right? What dead person really cares about the things in this world? So that's, that's Paul's point. We, he says, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. I, I'm dead to all this stuff. All this doesn't matter to me. This isn't what matters most to me. And verse 3 says, you died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Hidden carries with it a couple different ideas. One thought is security. We're hidden in Christ. That is, we're all wrapped up in Him. We're secure. And hidden also carries the idea of, of the, the, the idea that the world can't understand the new life we've, we've experienced. We're hidden in Christ. They look at us and they say, what's wrong with them? What's wrong with you? What makes you tick? What makes your priorities what they are? 
What's the deal with you? It's because we're hidden with Christ. We have this new life that 2 Corinthians 5.17 speaks of when it says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come. We're dead to our old life. We're dead to sin. We're dead to the world. We have new life in Christ. We're hidden with Christ in God. We're all wrapped up in Christ. No wonder 1 Corinthians 6.17 says, he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit. That's what Paul is saying here in verse 3. We should seek things above because we're dead. We're dead to the things here, so seek things above. We're alive in Christ. And he says in verse 4, When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Did you catch that little phrase right there in the middle? Christ, who is our life? Christ is not merely rescuer, friend, King, Lord, Helper, Redeemer, but life itself. Oh, I want to be able to say that. Life itself. I want to be able to say with Paul, for to me to live is Christ. Not just a part of our lives, not just an aspect, not just a phase, not just a dimension, not just a segment, but our very life. And verse 4 says, when He appears, we will appear with Him in glory. Let me tell you something. Our life in Christ might be hidden now. In other words, it may not be clear to the world around us who we are and what we are and why we do what we do. It may be hidden now, but let me tell you, one day it's going to be revealed. The verdict of eternity is going to reverse the verdicts of time, and people are going to see the reward of life in Christ. That's going to take place, as Paul says here, when he appears at the second coming. By the way, did you know that you are in the Bible if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, there's a, there's a sense in which there's a picture of you in the Bible. Let me show it to you. Over in Revelation chapter 19, the very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. John says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse... And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God, and the armies, here we go, the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's you. That's me. That's us. We return with Christ to set up his kingdom. This is exactly what Paul says in Colossians. We appear with Him in glory. And Paul says in Colossians 3, when, we, when He appears, we will appear with Him in glory. So what is the message of Colossians 3, 1 through 4? It's the definition of true spirituality. And what is true spirituality? It's our hearts striving for things above and our minds set on things above. That should be our focus that should be our concentration. I mean, think about it. Beloved, think of this. Our home is there. Our head is there. Our hope is there. Our inheritance is there. So our hearts should be there. About A.D. 130, an astronomer named Ptolemy taught that the center of the solar system is the earth. And everything revolves around the earth. This goes all the way back to 130, A.D. 130. For 1,300 years, 
people believed that theory until a man by the name of Copernicus proved it wrong. Copernicus showed that the sun was actually the center of the solar system and everything revolves around it. It is sad how many Christians are living by the Ptolemaic theory of life. The world is the center of their universe instead of the sun. Beloved, Christ should be everything to us. He should be central. He should be our focus. And as I said earlier, if you are the kind of person who makes New Year's resolutions, there's no better than Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Let's bow as we pray. Father, by your grace, enable us to live this year ahead of us this way. The way we are exhorted, the way we are challenged in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. To have hearts on things above, to set our minds on things above, to have Christ as the grid through which we see everything. How we live, how we plan, how we work, how we play, how we respond, how we react, how we talk, how we think. May that reality of our new life in Christ totally dominate all of our being in every facet of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.